Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. Is that the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Sure, with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. Welcome to episode 182 of the Podium and Panel podcast, live today from Kansas City, Missouri, where I'm visiting my sons, and uh, we started a minute or two late. I told Pat I couldn't find my Apple Watch, and those things are small, but they're so damn expensive, so we ended up finding it, and uh, the crisis averted. So we have three cases today, one from the Indiana Supreme Court. A lot of these cases were before the holidays uh, weeks, and so um, assuming they don't get decided, the next couple of weeks we'll have cases. We don't expect too many cases to be heard uh, before New Year and into the first week. So the first case today, but is we do have we do have cases into the week of the second week of January because there were so yep. many argued the first couple of weeks. Yeah, um, so long as they don't get decided, I don't think many will get and decided. I don't think they are. They're from yeah. higher courts. So yeah, yeah. Uh, the first is uh, uh, the case is from the Illinois Appellate Court, First District, Solarzano versus Magnami. The second is from the Illinois Appellate Court, Second District, Gilbert versus Wisted. And the third and final case is from the Indiana Supreme Court, Gyrick, on behalf of themselves and all others similarly situated, et al. versus Anonymous One, et al. Turning to our first case, was the circuit court correct to enter summary judgment, finding that there was no apparent authority between Dr. Romano and West Suburban Medical Center, where the facts are as follows. The plaintiff saw Dr. Romano based upon a referral from her PCP, primary care physician, who was not affiliated with West Suburban to Dr. Romano at West Suburban. Dr. Romano's office was in a professional building adjacent to the hospital and in the same complex. Dr. Romano had been head of the orthopedics at the hospital and was chief of medical staff at the hospital. There were signs that identified the professional building as related to the hospital. The plaintiff contended that the consent form did not adequately identify Dr. Romano and his practices independent of the hospital. That is the question, and those are among the facts to be considered when the Illinois Appellate Court First District decides Solorzano versus Magnami. This case calls for the court to determine if there is a distinction between when a patient is treated in the hospital as to, opposed to being treated in the private office of the doctor located at the hospital campus. The key may be what conduct the hospital undertook to hold Dr. Romano out as its agent. Pat, with that, tell us about this case. Thanks, Dan. And this, this is a case where there's numerous defendants, and uh, a couple of those defendants are Dr. Romano directly, as well as uh, West Suburban Hospital, where he offices. Well, he doesn't just office there. He also is a chief of staff um, and is head of the orthopedics practice there. And so the question is, when the primary care physician, who is outside of the West Suburban ecosystem, shall we say, refers the plaintiff to Dr. Romano, and it's and it's alleged that, and it's not relevant for the dis- this discussion, but it's alleged that Dr. Romano, among many others, was negligent in treating the plaintiff and, and it caused uh, her injuries. Um, but the focus here is, is whether the hospital can get out on an apparent agency theory. Um, so she gets 
the plaintiff gets referred to to Dr. Romano, and he's she's not being seen at the hospital. Most of these apparent agency cases, Dan, you know, in my experience at least, they occur in the emergency room context. That's usually right. where this occurs. Um, right. It can occur in other contexts too, but this is one where she <clears throat> was assigned. She was recommended to go see this doctor at who happens to office at West Suburban. Um, she wasn't assigned. She wasn't referred to the hospital. She wasn't referred, you know, generally. There's, so there's there's case law that talks about were you going there to see a particular doctor, or were you going to see the, the or are you going to the hospital generally and relying upon their expertise? And then this this feeds into signs or uh, billboards and advertising the hospitals do that say, hey, we've got great doctors. Um, come see come see our doctors at at X Y Z hospital, uh, and. So people are going to rely on the hospital, and that's a holding out of the quality of the doctors. In this case, it was the relationship. I mean, this is very common in professional relationships where, you know, lawyers, we certainly have relationships with other lawyers. We refer clients to. We trust that the lawyer we're going to send it to is going to do a good job. They're not going to steal our client, um, these kinds of things. And so you refer the business to this other lawyer who has an expertise or the bandwidth to handle something that you can. And Dan, I'm sure we've referred yeah. matters out, and we've received referrals. Yep. Uh, in, in, in that way, um, that's the not the it's it's a big part of our business is is referrals uh, and building relationships with other lawyers. Certainly, part of the reason why Dan and I have been so active in bar associations because the way you get referrals is you meet people, you demonstrate what you know how to do. They grow to trust you because you have a similar interest in a bar association or commitment to that association. You similarly trust your clients to send them to. This is no different. Uh, what between yep. doctors is between lawyers, accountants, psychologists. Name the professional. Hell, auto mechanics. It doesn't matter. Um, if if a one auto mechanic, I imagine, has, you know, this guy's got a specialty in one brand of cars or one particular kind of problem, and over another, then he may refer that business if he doesn't have the bandwidth or the expertise to handle it. There's there's not difference between professionals in this kind of situation. But the question is, is, does that mean that the hospital where the doctor offices and where he has uh, uh, administrative duties, does that mean that he, they're responsible for everything that he does uh, in his personal practice? And so th- this really raised a question when he shows up, when the plaintiff shows up at the practice, it's in his office and it's, you know, Romano and Associates or something, and uh, or Romano Orthopedics, I think is what it is, Romano and Associates, that sounds like a law firm. Uh, or an accounting firm. This is Romano, Romano Orthopedics, or because you know, that's the area of practice that Dr. Romano practices in. And he, it, it, she signs an authorization form. It's titled Romano Orthopedics and uh, PC or LLC, and it says, yep. you know, it doesn't say anything about the relationship with West Suburban because why would it? You know, this is the reverse of the normal situation where you go to the hospital and the hospital, the hospital authorization form says, in this case, West Suburban. West Suburban Medical Center, and it says uh, the doctors here are independent contractors if they treat you as emergency room or doctors or this kind of doctor or that kind of doctor. It's a long list of the doctors, and and if they're on that list, then they're excluded. But in this case, the, there has to be the, the, the touchstone of, a, of a parent agency is the holding out by the principal. So what holding out did the hospital do? Was it merely that, that he had an office in their professional building adjacent to the hospital. That's, and, and so the suggestion from the court was, and particularly Justice Hyman was, well, why didn't West Suburban require certain things to be in the authorization form 
that said that you were not an employee of West Suburban and this and that. And, and the, the doctor's like, well, the hospital's like, why would we do that? Why would anyone think that just because he's on the campus and just because he happens to have a professional position at the hospital and just because you get the point, <laughs> it's, it, 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 it's a bit, it's a bit strained uh, for the, hospital to argue that when he's on their facility and, the, and, and so forth. I, I frankly don't see it. But the problem is, is that we know how these things are actually organized. We understand that there is, there are hospitals and then there are doctors and the doctors have a separate practice. And the, the mere fact that they office adjacent doesn't mean that they are um, related to the hospital. Now, this is, if this case comes out, as I suspect it's going to, it's going to, create a conflict between a case that came out last year, uh, Bailey, I'm sorry, not Bailey, Mercy Hospital. I can't remember who the plaintiff was in that case, where the the doctor, the plaintiff had seen this doctor first in the emergency room at Mercy Hospital and then had gone to the doctor's office at the hospital and signed multiple authorization forms that showed that the doctor was independent of the hospital. Now, that was multiple authorization forms in that case. And he, she had seen him in his separate, I think it was cardio, cardiology practice. Um, so the nature of the practice doesn't really matter, but the office location does. And she had signed multiple forms that said that um, the doctor was independent of the hospital. Um, and whether that, uh, it, how, the, how you square those two cases, that case didn't specifically come up at the argument. But that seems to inf- seems that it might inform the decision here. Uh, parent agents, you know, the idea that under these circumstances, what the hospital was supposed to do, where they weren't they weren't employed, he wasn't working for them at the time. Uh, the mere fact that someone is a chief of staff doesn't mean that they're always and always and forever an employee. And there's also unclarity. And apparently, there were signs or, or, or these awards were in the the. Uh, lobby of his office. But again, that's not the hospital holding out. That's the doctor doing the holding out. Um, so I, I, I think I know how this case is going to come out. I really don't agree with it. But um, the uh, I, I do see the plaintiff's point and how this could be confusing if someone is willing to just bury their head in the sand. I, I, I really don't understand what kind of control the hospital is really supposed to exercise other than over his entire business, just because they sign a lease with the guy. Um, and I, I don't see how the patients are served by having doctor's offices far away from hospitals or not a jail, because sometimes there's emergency and they need to walk them up, walk them to the hospital and get them the treatment they need right away in case there's a problem. Um, so there's certainly an advantage to having them all grouped together, but this would certainly, this decision goes the way I expect in favor of the plaintiff and there's a reversal and they're going to go to trial, you would see, you know, why would hospitals countenance this or there's going to be a whole lot more paperwork and signs and things that I'm not sure how much of a difference it's really going to make. Uh, Dan, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I agree with all that, Pat, but I do think in this case, I do think this hospital, uh, unlike some of the cases we've covered where the signs in the emergency room and everywhere else say this guy is not an employee. Again, he's held out as the head of orthopedics, held out as the medical director, the professional building is, says it's related to the hospital, so most of them have signs everywhere, You'd like like you know parking garages and all kinds of other stuff, right? Hey, we have no liability, blah 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 blah. We're not related. So I do think in this case, it's a, an unusual circumstance, and you know, 
Patty and I do know the the whole setup, and most plaintiffs lawyers know it too. But you know, I I, can, I, I think you're right in this case. I think it is going to go the way you think it is from moral argument. Um, and, and again, on the, these facts, maybe a little bit different than our typical variety. Like I said, most of these occur in the emergency room where the question is whether or not you can give consent because you're out of it, you're unconscious, you know, your mother, your sister, your wife, wife. Your, yeah. somebody's with you, and do they have agency to see the signs? Is anybody even reading the sign when you're, you know... You're, <laughs> you're more worried about your loved one. Right? You, you, you fell and, you know, you, you got uh, bones or something protruding from you. But, in the, you know... I think in this case, like I said, it'll be a conflict with the Mercy case, and so it'll create an issue for um, the courts. Yeah, I agree with you that you know that it's probably not the right result, but again, these facts seem to be, you know, some simple steps that a hospital could take to, uh, you know, try to avoid uh, creating this this concept. You know, and again, not an emergency situation like like in many cases. So it, we'll, we'll see how this goes, but. Yeah, from the oral arguments and from Justice Hyman uh, and, and and others, uh, yeah, I think it's it's. Uh, I think you're right. I think the prediction is going to be that this case gets reversed. We go to trial, yeah. and then it'll be back up. Indeed. So with that, we'll take our first break and come back with segment two of the Podium and Panel podcast. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel Podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. We're back for segment two of episode 182 of the Podium and Panel Podcast, and does the does the time for a plaintiff to serve the defendant continue to run for rule for the purposes of Rule 103B while a case is dismissed for want of prosecution? That is the question to be answered when the Illinois Appellate Court Second District decides Gilbert versus Whitstead. The plaintiff filed suit but continued to negotiate with the defendant's insurance company with a tacit agreement not to serve the defendant. A settlement did not result, and by the time the plaintiff issued summons to the defendant, the case had been dismissed for want of prosecution twice, and the defendant had moved to Florida. As a consequence, the plaintiff did not serve the defendant for 11 months from the original filing of the complaint. The circuit court dismissed the complaint pursuant to 103B, which has been held to require service in about five months. In that regard, the plaintiff argued that he obtained service just over five months from the filing if the time from the case, if the file, if the time that the case was DWP'd, twice, by the way, twice, yeah. w- was removed. Uh, Dan, tell us about the travails of this lawyer who's going to have, might have a very, very bad day. Yeah, it's uh, a, a, a very, very bad day, probably. Uh, I have a Christmas sweater with Larry David says, have a pretty, pretty, pretty good Christmas. Well, this guy is <laughs> not, he's going to have a pretty, pretty, pretty bad uh, sometime after January, um, it was it was uh, it was almost cringeworthy if you listen to this oral argument because this this uh, uh, attorney was was given not a not a speck of mercy and a lot of questions about the timeline, what the hell he did for this time, the uh, 
the situation here was that the person he was trying to serve was had moved to Florida, I believe, mm-hmm. and That's the cool. adjuster the adjuster said, "I can't give you the address. It's personal information." And so, um, but it wasn't just that he failed to serve. And as Pat mentioned, 103B, it doesn't give an actual date or time certain. It's it's uh, rule 103 is alias summons is part A, part B is dismissal for lack of diligence. And all it says is if the plaintiff fails to exercise reasonable diligence to obtain service on a defendant prior to the expiration of the applicable statute of limitations, the action as to that defendant may be dismissed without prejudice. If the failure to exercise reasonable diligence to obtain service occurs after the expiration, it'll be with prejudice. As Pat said, this was DWP twice. Um, this uh, attorney, for whatever reason, didn't have a summons issued. Uh, or an alias summons. Well, he had a good reason. He, he just didn't memorialize it in writing that the carrier right. was going to, you know, not object. Uh, yeah, he, he, yeah. So, so what happened here? Pat, Pat raised a good point. So, what happened here was, according to him, he called the adjuster and said, "Look, I'm trying to get service in this guy," and he had a uh, some kind of tacit agreement that there would be no uh, dismissal of this case. Uh, but it uh, w- w- went on for, for an extended period of time. As Pat said, it took 11 months, I think it was, Pat, right? So, And then um, there's a couple of cases on this in, in Illinois that talk about uh, DWPs versus voluntarily dismissals and, and whether that makes a difference. The um, um, it, it, This case is interesting, Pat. I have an arbitration case right now where the plaintiff... Um, has has uh, uh, it, it's it's a commercial dispute, but it, but they're trying to serve on the defendant who owes them some money allegedly, and we've now been in three times on preliminary hearings. We had a hearing this past Monday, Pat, and the uh, lawyer for the plaintiff uh, company said that he's going to he he asked for one more grant of time, and he said if I can't if I can't effectuate service then I'm going to dismiss the case because it's just, uh, uh, you know, again, probably keep it in mind this 103B and some other uh, provisions. Um, the um, the uh, justices right out of the box, as we talked about, they were very hot and heavy on the appellant. Um, I don't know. I, I listed probably, I don't know, 25, 35 questions. I mean, it just was, was on and on and on. Um, the justice asked pleased. questions. No, they were not pleased, um, and and they ended uh, before his rebuttal. But in the main, uh, in the main uh, argument by appellant, one of the, one of the justices asked, "You're aware that the argument's on the record?" Uh, the, the, and, and they talked about the rule, talking about the totality of the circumstances. Um, uh, you know the the the. Uh, issue here and the, the standard of review in these cases is abuse of discretion. And so part of the issue that was that, that the justices were pushing on is, is that what, what are they supposed to go on in terms of an abuse of discretion in this case? Because there's no record again. There's, uh, as Pat said, the, the, uh, the, the attorney had an agreement with the adjuster, but it's not in the record. It's not memorialized he at all. He also didn't offer an affidavit. No affidavit. And he said that's on him that he didn't do an affidavit. Um, it just uh, we've, we've talked about on this show many times. Uh, 
you know, the advice is to, to make sure that you conduct yourself accordingly and, and appropriately on behalf of your clients when you're uh, under the rules of civil procedure, under the our, our rules of ethical obligations, you name it, you have to be uh, uh, on top of your cases and uh, when you uh, when you don't take those steps and you don't do the things that are necessary to potentially help you uh, and your client, not only at the trial level but at the appellate level, uh, as Pat and I've talked about in this show, we, we focus exclusively on appellate arguments, and uh, all the all that the justices and judges that decide these cases can go on is what's in the record. They can't. Uh, they can't, uh, on their own, uh, uh, consider facts or things that aren't in the record. Uh, we see that sometimes with briefs and stuff. But um, when the when the appellee got up, he also mentioned that some of these arguments that were being made by the appellant in trying to answer the justice's questions and justify, you know, kind of what the record does look like in this case, uh, the the appellee in this case noted that many of these arguments. Uh, weren't even in the briefs or are, were being argued for the first time uh, that day. And so an interesting case. I don't know uh, that this, this, this case, you know, if we're doing predictions, I don't know this case has a chance of of, uh, of, of being reversed and giving this guy a, a day. I think he's going to have a bad day when this decision comes out. I think so, too. Um, and and I, you mentioned the affidavit. I want to make sure we put that in there. Is you got you got to have the proper record, and if you don't have the right record, you you, you really you're gonna have a you're gonna have a problem. Um, you've got to think yep. about what is in that record in order to make sure that the court gets um, has a chance. You got to give them the raw material. If right, um, if you don't give them the so, it, it, it's a real problem uh, not having the uh, the appropriate material. So with that, we'll take our next break and. Um, We'll come back with Garrick versus Anonymous One. I might have something to say. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at Podium and Panel Podcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel Podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. Welcome back to segment three of episode 182 of the Podium and Panel Podcast. And in this case, the question is, the question of bodily injury conceded? Are the patient's claims for bodily injury required by the Indiana Medical Malpractice Act? Specifically, are claims for emotional distress damages stemming from bodily touching covered under the act and what case law supports that those were the first questions that the chief justice of the Indiana supreme court wrote down when she was preparing for the oral argument in Girick on behalf of themselves and all others similarly situated at al versus anonymous one the court described the case thusly and it's a in, in indiana supreme court case so we get these nice summaries quote when a technician failed to properly sterilize certain surgical equipment Anonymous hospital notified potentially affected patients. Linda Gierich filed a class action, moved for class certification, and filed a proposed complaint with the Indiana Department of Insurance. The Indiana Patients Compensation Fund intervened 
the Elkhart Superior Court denied Gerich's motion, finding it did not have subject matter jurisdiction to rule on class certification while a proposed complaint was pending with the Medical Review Panel. The Court of Appeals affirmed in part and reversed in part, finding Gerich's motion was a preliminary determination the trial court could rule on. Gerich et al. versus Anonymous Hospital et al. 212 Northeast 3rd, 208, Indiana Court of Appeals 2023 vacated. The Indiana Supreme Court has granted transfer and assumed jurisdiction over the case, end quote. At oral argument, the issue was first raised by Justice Slaughter that no bodily injury was alleged, and that was the threshold question for there to be jurisdiction under the MMA. No one raised the issue before the oral argument, and the court has now asked for supplemental briefing. In addition, the plaintiff's complaint has a myriad of other failings. If they were exposed to a disease, then it is covered by the MMA. If they were not exposed and all they have is worry about being exposed, then they fall outside of the MMA because there is no bodily injury. But then they have another problem, standing. Standing is another jurisdictional bar. No matter what the plaintiffs do, there is no subject matter jurisdiction for the claim. Plaintiffs are seeking class certification for emotional distress claims that are inherently individual and not amenable to class treatment. Second, with respect to the medical monitoring in count one of the amended complaint, there's an argument that such is not recoverable. See, for example, Berry versus City of Chicago, 2020, Illinois, 124999. Third, if any of the putative class members did get diagnosed with the disease, there's a causation problem of proving that they got the communicable disease from the hospital, a problem for predominance in the class certification context. With that, Pat, tell us about this very interesting and somewhat complex uh, case. <laughs> Thanks, Dan. And, and I, I, Dan's commentary there at the end was things I posted on LinkedIn about the massive problems the plaintiffs have in this case. I get that there's a problem with this technician having not properly cleaned these tubes and potentially exposed over a thousand people to various communicable diseases. The allegations are hepatitis B, C, and HIV. Uh, I don't want any of those diseases. I hope no you one know. gets them. Uh, but <laughs> the chance of them proving, number one, th- number one, there were seven of these technicians and only one of them was screwing, was screwing up. So you'd have to be one of, you'd have to be of the thousand people who had surgery during this period when this nincompoop wasn't cleaning the tubes because he didn't get any training and he apparently didn't have any logic in his brain. And so, uh, when they had this period of time with these, these, uh, uh, so you'd have to be one of the people that got the disease, you know, that, that got the unclean tubes. And then you'd also have to be someone who, who got tubes that were previously being used by someone you know, on a patient who had these diseases. And then even if they did have it and it didn't get clean, you'd then have to be unfortunate enough to get the disease. Well, that is one very unlucky person. Now, as I said, is it possible that this could happen? Of course it's possible. But the mere fact that I'm worrying about it doesn't mean it's compensable. And so the issue becomes, under the Medical Malpractice Act, it's, it's, you can get recovery for, medical, for bodily injury. And so what the court has asked for supplemental briefing on, not only from the parties, but from they've, they've, they've basically issued an all-hands-on-deck all call for a Miki. Uh, and, and full disclosure, uh, you know, among those amici might be the Defense uh, Trial Council of Indiana, of which I'm a member and I'm on the amicus committee. Um, but 
they're, you know, they've made a call to all the organizations, ITLA, uh, in the Indiana Trial Lawyers Association, I imagine others, the hospitals and so forth, will may, may chime in uh, on this issue. Uh, but they're talking about, is this bodily injury? So if it's bodily injury, it falls within the Medical Malpractice Act, and there's no subject matter jurisdiction. If there isn't bodily injury, then you're outside of the, the Medical Malpractice Act. Okay, great. You don't you aren't you don't have all those caps and all that stuff. But now you've got a you've got a whole different set of problems. And I really I I, I have to say I I I don't know what the lawyers are doing in this case. I don't know why the plaintiffs. I mean, I understand why the plaintiffs filed the case, but I don't understand. There's so many problems with this plaintiff's complaint. The, that they get to the Supreme Court, it's the first time anybody realizes there's a bodily injury problem. Um, I, I, I don't understand that. I don't understand, you know, raising all of these jurisdictional problems at the very start um, and just having this myopic view. Oh, it's covered by the MMA. It's covered by the MMA. It's covered by the MMA. Well, no, you've got to look wider, people. Um, there's this, this complaint is fatally flawed. I mean, literally fatally flawed. Uh, and I, I don't understand how it could ever stand because they just turned it down blind from one blind alley to the next uh, yeah. of jurisdictional problem. And how you could ever certify a class of emotional distress? I mean, come on. You, you can't do it. How, how, how more individual of a damage could there possibly be than emotional distress? I mean, it doesn't get any more individual than that. How one person responds, what one person finds disturbing, what another person responds, and then how they how they express that distress. What kind of treatment they get? I mean, I, I, I just fundamentally don't understand how this case could ever be certified. I get the problem the hospital has here, and they made a major boo-boo with not training this person and potentially exposed people to very, very awful diseases. And if someone at right. some point could link these things up, that person has a cause of action. But in the absence of, I'm just worried, this, this is in the same category of those cases we see. Uh, those FTCPA cases we see frequently in the Seventh Circle, not anymore because they've chased them out. They've chased them to the Illinois Supreme Court uh, with the Fawcett case that we will talk about once that gets fully briefed uh, about whether, you know, what qualifies as as injury for under Illinois law outside of the BIPA context. Because we know what it is in the BIPA context under the Rosenberg case. We don't know what it is in the other context we're about to find out in the in Fawcett, which is a... a uh, a FACTA case. So he, too many digits on the on the receipt issue. And now I'm worried that, you know, something somewhere, somebody could have a, you know, find some information on me or some nonsense. It's all drivel uh, in, in my judgment. And, and this is not drivel. It's just so remote and isn't amenable to class treatment, no matter what you do. Uh, so I, I really, this case is very problematic. Uh, I, I am, I, I don't know how the plaintiff's claim ever ultimately survives. I understand bringing it, but I don't know. I don't know how you would ever succeed it, as a class. I don't know how you succeed as an individual. Never mind a class. Uh, but it's an interesting case to think through a lot of these issues. Um, and when I first came across it, and the, the request from the Supreme Court for for uh, Amica's participation, I did spend some time thinking about it, and was like, boy, oh boy. Uh, got down the rabbit hole of all these of all these problems. Dan, uh, do you have any any thoughts on this? Pat, I agree with you. And you know, one one of the things that I thought about as I listened to this is that if 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 every time we worried about something that was done, you know, in the in in the, in the context of a doctor or 
you go to a dentist, you know, the dentist is sick, you know, all kinds of things, right? There's all kinds of things in life almost every day, you know, you, you go to the you know, pot bellies and you know, someone's hack, hacking in your sandwich again, like, you know, it's it's worrisome, you fret, you, you may have some emotional distress, but it's, not, it's every, everything in life that may impact you is not actionable. And, and I agree with you, I don't see how this case I don't see that there's any action, even on an individual basis. You know, we've we've talked about emotional distress, and again, with without, you know, if you're the one person, if you did get a, a disease, maybe you've got some kind of you got some some other uh, kind of cause of action. But under the Malpractice Act, I don't understand how how you'd ever have a case. So with that, that brings us to our um, BI for COVID and BIPA. We're going to talk about BIPA and the predictions. I don't think we had any other BI. We may have to change this segment, uh, Dan. We'll have to talk about that yeah. uh, in the new year. Uh, maybe maybe change it for the new year. We did, we did have that case uh, that you, you sent me late last week. Or yeah, there's a is it California? There, the California, California again, yeah, right? California Supreme With Court. Maybe we keep it alive until the California Supreme Court decides the issue because they're the only court that's got, still got cases going both ways, and the Supreme Court just hasn't decided the issue yet. Eventually, yeah. they'll get around to it. Uh, they're going to have to. Um, and then... A whole, then the, everywhere else, it's dead. But, everywhere uh, else, dead. Yeah. Everywhere else, it's dead. Well, we still got BIPA and GIPA. And oh, yeah. We got plenty of other specialties. We'll, we'll maybe just call it the alphabet soup of... <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so with that, that brings us to our prediction sure to go wrong this week. Uh, Dan is 284 and a half, 59 and a half, and 19. I am 281 and a half, 62 and a half, and 19. We were 2 and 0 this week. Uh, Dan, uh, the first case that came out, we discussed on episode 179, National Fire Insurance versus Visual PAC uh, by uh, Justice Ellis. And why don't you tell us about uh, that case? Hey, Pat, why don't you? I don't have my notes with me. Oops. All right. This case is a, uh, was an unusual case where uh, the Illinois courts uh, said that the Seventh Circuit was wrong in interpreting uh, BIPA, and uh, uh, we don't see a, a direct uh, us- uh, direct contradiction usually of the Seventh Circuit. It's usually softer than that, but in this case, uh, on a rarity, the, the court said, no, you got it wrong in terms of, uh, of, of this uh, matter. And so uh, an unusual uh, win, but also uh, an unusual... Uh, as, as we've talked about under Erie and, and other concepts, the Seventh Circuit oftentimes is asked and called upon to determine, if Illinois has not determined the case, uh, what uh, an Illinois court would do, the highest court would do, uh, given the question. So an interesting case and a lot of, a lot of uh, traction and a lot of discussion of this case uh, by many uh, folks on, on LinkedIn, because it's an important case in the kind of the bit the chain. Yeah, and it, it, it's not the end of the story. The, the, you know, no. The, the, I, I think that a Illinois appellate court decision is certainly a better guess as to what the Illinois Supreme Court's going to do on a particular topic, but it's not it's not dispositive by any sense. The the reasoning that just that that principally guided Justice Ellis's uh, opinion for the court is that what Judge Rovner said is that the exclusion carved away too much of the coverage that was granted. And he's like, well, that's what exclusions do. It doesn't take away all the coverage. It just takes away, yeah, it takes away a lot of it. 
all statutory coverage. It takes away things for Lanham Act and copyright and things of this nature, which is the time we talked about is obviously of great concern to federal judges because that's cases they deal with a lot, but it doesn't take away all coverage such that the exclusion renders the coverage grant illusory. And so that, that's at least one of the bases upon which they uh, reversed, yep. rever- or not reversed, but uh, disagreed with the Seventh Circuit. Which brings us to the next case we got right. We also we discussed in episode 181. This is Sagas versus Spanky Drainage. I love the name of the drainage district. This case holds the rather not rather uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for uh, uncontroversial and heretofore uh, uh, really rather unremarkable proposition that you need to have compensatory damages in order to get punitive damages. Notwithstanding that rule, the circuit court awarded punitive damages after not finding punitive or compensatory damages and awarded them in the form of the attorney's fees that the plaintiff had incurred because of the defendant's uh, uh, intentional tort of trespass. And the uh, <laughs> court said, you can't do that. You needed to have found compensatory damages in order for there to be, uh, in order for there to be punitive damages awarded. And therefore we're reversing it. And the other mistake that the lawyers made for the plaintiff is they didn't cross appeal the finding of no compensatory damages. Uh, so got that one right too. Dan, uh, what are your, what are your thoughts on anything to add on that case? No, nothing really add. I think that, uh, it's, uh, like you said, I think it's, a, was, was the right decision and, and imagine, imagine that you need, <laughs> you need ties between right. punitive damages and real damages. Indeed. So with that, that brings us to our prediction sure to go wrong this week. And uh, Dan, I think we kind of we kind of said what we thought was going to happen in Salazano. I think Salazano will be uh, reversed. Reverse that. Yep. And then Gilbert will be affirmed. Affirmed. Yep. And Gierick, they're going to find there's no bodily injury. Yep. And your dog agrees. And if you're drinking at home, there's the dog bark. We haven't had a dog bark ambulance. Yeah, my, my father, <laughs> my father, came, my father came in, and uh, it, it, and the dog is, you know, of course, has to greet him with the usual, the usual dog greetings, um, <laughs> and, and that includes making lots of noise. Our dog is great, is a great guard, a great watchdog, and a terrible guard dog. Uh, his, his most fearsome attack would be licking you to death. Um, but he does make well, a lot of noise. He makes a <laughs> lot of noise, uh, which is not um, amenable to the, uh, the the recording of a podcast. It's good we're almost done because he's uh, he, he's all geared up to make more. He's noise. ready. He's ready to make more noise. Uh, and my and whether my daughter wants to sleep or not, she's going to get up because he's going to keep making noise because that's what he does. <laughs> all right, so that brings us to our rule of the week, um, and this is Jameson versus Sweeney. Um, this is going to be the topic of my column for the week, not the issue that uh, we're going to talk about in this rule of the week, but a different issue. And we'll talk about that as the rule of the week next week after I after my column gets published. And I say some, yep. I have to make sure I don't say things I shouldn't say, um, because it's this decision on the other issue is, mani- I believe, to be manifestly incorrect. But we'll talk about that next week after yeah. I publish the column on the topic. This week is the far. There's two. There were two motions to dismiss filed by the defendant of the plaintiff's appeal. So this is a very uh, 
um, what's the word I'm working for? Uh, tragic circumstance, I would say. The allegation yeah. is is that this young this young lady was uh, abused by her father or stepfather. I, I, I don't know. Clear. Sexually abused by uh, a father. It's bad. Figure. Yeah, it's yeah. bad. Now there was a criminal. These are the allegations. The criminal investigation finds it doesn't he ends up not getting charged, and so she files a civil action, and in the civil action the case goes to trial, um, and the jury finds in favor of the defendant. The plaintiff appeals, uh, and she files the lawyer files the notice of appeal. The 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 judge the, ju- the jury came back on a Friday afternoon after the clerk had gone home. Verdict's announced, judgment is entered, but the judgment order itself wasn't entered. Notwithstanding that, they immediately filed the notice of appeal. We'll talk about that problem next week. But the, the first, this, the argument made on a motion to dismiss was by the defendant is, is that, well, you appealed before there was a judgment to appeal from. But the problem for them is that the rule says that if the if you file the notice of appeal before the judgment is entered, it goes back to when the judgment is entered to make it timely. In other words, you can't file a notice of appeal too early is, is the general idea. Uh, I think that's a really rather uncontroversial proposition because I think it's directly out of the rule. Uh, so. it's, the, it's the issue with the post-trial motion we're going to talk about next week that's a little less clear. Uh, or I think it's very clear and in the opposite direction which the court held it. But we'll get there. Um, Dan, anything to add on this, but Jameson versus Sweeney, unpublished decision though it is, uh, I commend it to people to read, uh, as it's, uh, an interesting procedural issue and there's going to be a lot to be said about what the court says on the other issue we'll talk about next week. So preview of coming attractions. Yep, Dan, nothing, anything to add. nothing to add no, on that. No, so with I look that, forward we'll to take... discussion in next week, you know, exactly. The, It'll be much more interesting. Yeah. So, so with, as we have time to marinate on the issues more too. Uh, and maybe for me to soften my view, but I don't think so. So with that, we'll take our leave. Uh, It's Christmas Eve. Wish everybody a Merry Christmas, and we'll see you uh, next week on New Year's Eve. I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the podium and panel podcast, we will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court, with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.